Amen. Lord, indeed, you are our God, our Savior, our King, our Redeemer, our friend. What a blessing that we can know you in such an intimate and a personal way. We thank you, Lord, as we sit here in Santa Cruz and we cry out to you and we worship you, Lord. You're here in our midst. And Lord, you hear our voice. Lord, you see our hearts. You know what we're going through right now. Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name that you, by your Spirit, would be our teacher tonight. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. Father, may we not just be studying a book, but may we be reading the living, breathing Word of God, and may it transform our lives. Lord, we ask that you would meet us here, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to see you. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament after a couple weeks of, of a break there. It's good to be back. Good to see you guys. Love being here. So let me give you a, some update real quick. And again, by the way, the Sunday night messages the next two weeks, unless you've got like surgery planned or something, you really ought to show up. I promise you, you will absolutely be blessed. I love going to pastor's conferences, but I'll tell you what, every once in a while, I just feel like God shows up in a super mighty, powerful way, and I'll tell you what, all three messages that the Lord used uh, Pastor Rhodes to share with us were absolutely incredible, and I've listened to all of them numerous times already, so I would really encourage you, clear your calendar Sunday night and come on out, you'll be blessed. All right, let me catch you up. Uh, 1 Samuel, remember, began with the children of Israel in rebellion against God. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They got caught up in pagan idolatry. There was no judge in Israel. There was corruption in the priesthood. If you'll remember, Eli was the priest. He was very complacent. His own sons were very corrupt. They were using their position in the priesthood to fleece the people, to steal from them, also to entice women And they were having sexual immorality right there inside the tabernacle. The people began to resent the sacrificial system, didn't want to come up to the tabernacle anymore. And born into that environment was this young boy by the name of Samuel. Now, the thing about Samuel was that God was preparing his mom all along to be prepared to give him up completely to the service of the Lord. And the way that happened was Hannah was barren. And she continued to cry out to the Lord, if you'll remember that Penina was the other wife to her husband, Elkanah, and, and he, it was so sad that she was barren, and because she was, he went and got another wife, and she started giving birth to children, and Hannah was being mocked, and she comes to the tabernacle at the time of the feast, and she cries out to God. And Eli is so far away from the Lord, he thinks she's drunk when he hears her praying, because he's so unused to hearing people pray with fervency. Well, Samuel is born, and she does give him into service, to this man Eli, whose own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are wicked and ungodly men. Now, in the midst of this ungodly people, Lord speaks to Samuel. Now, as he speaks to Samuel, Eli's sons are out there trying to manipulate God, and Samuel is hearing from the Lord. Now, what did Hophni and Phinehas do? Samuel has heard from the Lord, and the first thing he hears is pronouncing judgment upon Eli and his family because of their ungodliness. And so they go out into battle and they lose initially to the Philistines. So they go and they get the ark and they bring the ark out into battle with them. And if you'll remember what happens, it says they put their faith in it. We don't put our faith in it. Not in the 
the ark of God, but the God of the ark. Amen? And so what happened was they went out into battle, and the ark went before them, and they were trying to force God's hand. Don't try to do that ever. Amen? Don't try to force God's hand. They tried to force God's hand, and all that happened was they got wiped out. Now the Philistines got pretty puffed up with themselves, thinking their God was now better than the God of Israel. And they took the ark, and if you remember, they put it in the temple to Dagon, their God, half fish, half man, their half fish man God, who then, they put the ark at the feet of Dagon, and they came in the next day, and what happened? Dagon had fallen over. Now if your God can fall down, that's not good. So they had to pick their God back up, dust him off, and then he fell down again, and this time his head and his hands came off. Now, again, if your God's head can fall off, that's not good either. Now, not only did that happen to prove that, that the God of Israel was a true and living God, even when his own people were in rebellion, then what happened was they were inflicted with tumors. And the actual translation there is hemorrhoids. So that's also not good. And so now they've got hemorrhoids, and their, God, their fish God's got no arms and no head, and they decide to push on the ark to another city within the Philistine land. And every city it goes to, they have the same problem. So finally, they send the ark back to the children of Israel. They put a couple of cows there, and the cows are the only ones so far outside of Samuel that's obeyed God in this entire book because the cows took the ark straight back where it belonged, where everybody else was disobeying God. And if you remember, the first place they brought it was a city called Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh, when they saw the ark come because the ark had been captured, and they were beside themselves because without the ark, it'd be like us not having the Bible. They had no way to sacrifice to God. They had no way to really worship the Lord or have the presence of God with them. And so they were distraught. And now after some time, the ark is coming back and they're excited. But sadly, they make a mistake. If you remember, they opened up the ark and looked inside to make sure that the Philistines hadn't stolen anything out of the ark. Namely, the Ten Commandments. But what happens when you look at the law without the mercy of God covering it? They died. And in the text says that 50,070 of them died. There was a great slaughter. Now, we got to chapter 7, and the people of Beth Shemesh decide, you know, we're excited about the ark, but we don't want it in our city. And so they send it off, and the people of of Kirjath-Jerim come and get the ark, and we see revival in Israel. In chapter 7, we saw revival in Israel. And how did it happen? Israel had had, again, after 20 years of the ark in their presence, they finally come to a place where they begin to cry out to God. If you were here last time, three weeks ago, we looked at chapter 7. I titled the message, A Recipe for Revival. And how did it happen? First, they put God back in his proper place. They put the ark back in a place, uh, again, where the priests were watching over it. Again, it was not where the people came in and could have access to it putting God back in his place of prominence and reverence. The second thing they did is they began to cry out to the Lord. It says they lamented for God. So there was brokenness and there was confession. If you want to see revival in your own life, it starts with brokenness in your heart. Coming before God broken and desperate and crying out to him. Then we saw they put away all their false gods. This is a picture of true repentance. It's not repentance to say to God, I'm sorry, and keep living the same life. It's repentance when we come before God, we confess our sin, we're broken before Him, and then we put away all the false idols we've been worshiping. We take all those things that we've been putting in front of Him and we set them aside, whatever they are. And the children of Israel finally do that. They are broken and their conviction and confession is sincere and it's seen in their repentance, putting away of the false gods. They then deny their flesh. If you remember, they had a time of fasting and prayer. 
Then they sought godly counsel. They went to Samuel and asked him what they should do. Instead of doing things their way, they started to seek the Lord. God is bringing a revival into the camp after they have been doing what was right in their own eyes. And again, notice this clear pattern that we can follow today. They reinstated the sacrificial system and you know, they started having sacrifices again, which is a realization that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. And so when we step away from the cross and see no need for the cross, we've fallen away from God. And for there to be revival, we need to be reminded again. That's why taking the Lord's Supper is a good reminder to remember what God has done for us. So with all that they had done, God then brought victory. It says that he thundered down against the Philistines in chapter 7, and then he restored to them and gave them back everything they had lost in rebellion. So what a great chapter, chapter 7. If you want to study a picture of revival, again, they put God back on the throne, They came broken and confessing before him. They removed the false idols. They prayed and they fasted. They submitted to godly counsel. They reinstated the sacrificial system. And they began to walk in victory and restoration. Now, wouldn't it be great to say that from that point forward, their lives were faithful and fruitful and steadfast in their walk with God? Wouldn't it be great? Well, it would be. But chapter 8. And sadly, this is not the case. Israel just experienced revival and restoration, but just as with you and I, it would require a continued state of diligence and desperation to stay there. If you want to stay faithful with God, you need to stay diligent and desperate. You know, you can just, again, you've heard me say this many times, Christianity is indeed like a grease pole. You're either climbing up or sliding down, no one's staying in the same spot. And we're either pursuing God and drawing nearer to the Lord, or we're walking away from Him. And sadly, Israel experienced revival, and they have many years of blessing in the land. But you know what? Very quickly, revival can fade away. Revival can turn to rebellion. And in tonight's text, we will learn a lot about how quickly a revival can dry up by looking at what Israel's actions are in tonight's text. So if you're a note taker, It's going to be four points to the message. Title of the message, Falling Away from God, How to Quench the Spirit of Revival. Falling Away from God, How to Quench the Spirit of Revival. And here are the four points. Number one, if you want to quench the spirit of revival, start looking to men instead of looking to God. Start focusing on men and what men do and what men say. Let men stumble you and start looking to men to be your source of your growth spiritually. And if you do, you will be on your way to falling away from God. So look to men, not to God, both lose and build your faith based on the actions of men. Number two, look to the world for direction. You want to to lose revival, you want to have rebellion, you want to fall away from God? Start looking to the world for your example. Well, that's what the world does, that's what I'll do. Follow the world's example and reject the Lord's leadership. Number three, falling away from God, how to quench the spirit of revival. Disregard the word of God. Start Getting to the place where you refuse to heed his divine warning. Don't truly believe what he says. Well, the Bible says that, but that doesn't really apply to me. As soon as you get there, you're on your way to fall. You've already fallen away from God. And number four, demand your will. Go to God and just tell him what he needs to do. Believe that you know better than God and act like it. No matter what the cost. We laugh, chapter 8. We're going to see it tonight. So, falling away from God, how to quench the spirit of revival. Number one, look to men, not to God. Both lose and build your faith based on the actions of men. Look at verse one. 
of chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, now it came to pass when Samuel was old. Now, this means that some time has gone by and that they have been walking in this period of revival for some time. Again, depending on which commentators you listen to, many believe that Samuel was probably around 70 years old at this point which means they had had several decades of walking with the Lord. The revival had come, they'd kept their eyes on God, and they'd been doing well with the Lord. But if you'll remember something about Samuel, in the last chapter, it says in verse 16, he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. If you'll remember, he was like a circuit preacher. And he would go from city to city, and in each city he would judge, but he would also deliver the word of God. He was God's prophet. He was God's man. He was the judge of all Israel. And so he was representing God to the people and and interceding for the people with God. And so everywhere he went, now again, if he's been doing this for decades, he's probably starting to grow weary. And as we see from the text, it says that when he was old, it was getting harder and harder for him to keep up with a very, very busy Uh, schedule that he had and traveling all over the known land of Israel at the time ministering to the people and here's what happened when he was old that he made his sons judges over Israel now this looks great on the surface he starts to give ministry away he takes the authority God has given him and he begins to plant it in his own sons now it doesn't say here in the text but I believe that the the man of God that he is is that he has been training up his sons since they were born. He's been ministering to them. He's been pouring his life into them. He's been sharing the truth with them, as we're going to see even from the meanings of their names. But I want to say this, too. I think about this at this point, is a saying that, you know, an old country saying, make hay while the sun's shining. You know, this is where Samuel is in life, that he is going to make sure that he takes the time he has left And he wants to give the ministry away so it continues on long after he's gone. And you know what? We need to be living for the Lord now, but we ought to be duplicating ourselves, giving ministry away, making disciples so that the ministry continues on long after we've gone home if we don't all get raptured together. And so it may be that your health won't allow you to do the things you used to do. It may be that your health will be strong until you're 100 years old. We don't know. But at the same time, none of us has the promise of tomorrow. And we need to be busy about God's work and His calling upon our lives, as well as giving ministry away, and again, continue until our time is up. So this was no doubt Samuel's intent, giving ministry to his sons, raising them up to take his place. But as we're going to see, it's not going to work out too well. Look at verse 2. The name of the firstborn was Joel, or Joel. Joel, or Joel, means Jehovah is God. That's a great name. Great name to name his son. Joel. Joel. The second son's name was Abijah. Abijah means Jehovah is my father. So Samuel's sons were raised in a godly home with a godly father. No doubt he discipled them and educated them. And at some point he felt they were ready to give them a position of authority in ministry. Look what it says. The name of his firstborn was Joel, or Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is the southernmost part of Israel. 
There's a saying that if you go to Israel today from Dan to Beersheba, because Dan is the northernmost part of Israel, and Beersheba is the southernmost part. And so he had given them a smaller part of, the, of Israel to begin their ministry, and there he had set them up in the southern part in Beersheba where they were serving as judges in preparation to give the ministry to them at some point, to put them in the position that he was currently in. But at the, sa- at the same point, they were away from their father's influence and oversight. And it's not going to work out too well. Look at verse 3. But his sons did not walk in his ways. You know what? I can think of few words that grieve, could grieve the heart of a parent more than that. You know, the Bible says in 1 John, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. There's nothing I want, I just being, and it's selfish, I know, but there's nothing I want more than my kids on fire for Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing this world has, nothing. If my kids are walking with God and on fire for God, I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be more blessed. And imagine Samuel, God's man, who God used in a mighty way, having his own sons not walking after the Lord. How it must have broken his heart. But it says there, he did not. Though they were raised in a godly home by a godly father and have been given godly instruction, they did not fear God. They fell into the same trap of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now Hophni and Phinehas stole from the people and were caught up in sexual immorality. But we're going to see that Samuel's sons, their big downfall is money. They were raised in the truth. No doubt they walked in it for a while. But in the end, they're choosing not to follow God. Look what it says. His sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Samuel's son's motivation was not faithfulness to God, but the pursuit of material wealth. And again, few sadder things that can be said of a man than that he was used, used his God-given gift or position for his own personal gain and selfish motives. Can I tell you that Few things make me more red, as Pastor Bill would say. It makes me red. Than seeing someone on TV fleecing God's people. Just absolutely fries me. And I have to pray in Jesus' name that God would open their eyes because I want to pray something else. Just smoke them, Lord, please. Just one time. Just one of them. Just, it'll be a service notice to all of them, Lord. Just fire down from the sky. Sons of thunder, right? You feel like James and John for a moment. Just, Lord, smoke that guy. Why are you letting him live? But you know what? He's a God of grace, isn't he? But at the same time, we need to know the word of God that we not be fleeced by them. I can think of a few things sadder than someone being in a position to minister to God's people and then using it for their own gain, and that is Samuel's sons. God is my father. God, you know, Jehovah is God. Those are their names. And yet, they're not living up to their names. It says there, after dishonest gain the word there is plunder bribes they were willingly contorted their justice for their own gain whoever gave the most they would judge in their side or on their direction and then it said they perverted judgment the word perverted means to stretch bend skew or turn aside when a person in a place of authority twists their judgment to help one who pays them they are the most of wicked people It says in Exodus, take no bribes, for a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see. A bribe also always hurts the cause of the person who is right. That's Exodus 23.8. 
In Proverbs 15, 27, it says, He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. Samuel's sons brought trouble to their family because they took bribes. It says in Proverbs 29, The king gives stability to the land, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. These, godly, these young men were raised in a godly home, taught and trained in the truth, and were selling out for the perishing riches of this world. So what happened to these guys? Now, some supposed that Samuel was away from home too much. You know, Samuel was an itinerant preacher, so he was gone a lot, and he wasn't spending enough time at home with his kids, and that's why they fell away. Well, that can be a point for all of us, that we can be too busy ministering to others, that we don't minister to our children at home. But I don't think that's what happened, because God had commanded Samuel to do that very thing. Others wonder if he might have put his boys in a position that they never should have been, like nepotism. You know, wanting his kids to serve God so much that he just put them in that position. You know, it's been said that we should not sanctify somebody by putting, you know, that which is holy in their hands. We see that in the Old Testament where they tried to have ungodly men carry the ark and they always got struck down dead. You know, God has those who he has called. And we don't try to sanctify somebody by putting them in a position where they don't belong. And some have wondered, well, maybe that's what happened. But I'll be honest with you. I think the biggest example that we should learn is that I believe the ultimate example here is that a man and his wife can raise their children in a godly home. They can discipline them. They can disciple them. They can pray for them. And yet they still have free will and they may choose to rebel against God. And so the point is this. We should not always look, or rarely should we look, and point the finger at the parents because their children are in rebellion. Now, with that being said, we must raise our kids in godly homes. Amen? We must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must teach them the whole counsel of God. We must not compromise the truth. We need to love them enough to apply godly discipline. Right? The rod of correction to the seed of learning with great frequency and... Do what is necessary to teach your children. The Bible says it will not kill them. We must not make the mistake of, of assuming, though, that a rebellious child is a result of unfaithful parents. I want to encourage you, if you're a parent here tonight and you've got a kid who's not walking with God, don't allow the enemy to condemn you because of that. We can't make our kids serve God. If we could, they'd all be serving God, wouldn't they? Amen? But we can pray for them, and we can intercede with them, and we should not compromise. We need to stand for the truth. Here's Samuel, God's man. And Samuel's boys are not walking with the Lord. Their disobedience no doubt gripped Samuel's heart to the point of breaking. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Now this is good. Because in the past they just did what was right in their own eyes. This time they come to Samuel in his home and seek his counsel, seek his direction. But we're going to see they start to give him some instructions. Not based on what the Lord has told them, but based on them looking at men instead of looking to God. So the elders of Israel, these are the spiritual leaders. Again, they're concerned. Samuel's getting old. His own sons are not walking with God. They're worried about, well, who's going to lead? Once Samuel dies, what are we going to do? What they needed to understand is they already had someone leading. And the, and the one who is leading is God. Amen? But sadly, they start to look around at the world and see that other nations have kings and other nations have 
you know, big yoked guys to lead the way, and they start to realize, well, we got Samuel, and he's kind of old, and his sons aren't that good, so, you know, we need to start looking at the world's example. And instead of seeking God, they look at men who have fallen, and they walk away from God, and this is what happens in the world today. Believe me, this grips my heart as a pastor. I think about how many people I would stumble if I fell. Now, I'm a sinner saved by grace just like everybody here. But the Bible says, let not many of you be teachers. Why? Because there's a higher level of accountability. And people hear you on the radio, and, they, you know, and they've got your tapes and your CDs, and you fall, and the enemy will jump out and let everybody, oh, see, that guy's a fake. Guys, don't put your faith in any man, including your pastor. Amen? Amen. My prayer would be that I never, I would rather be hit by a bus than fall. I promise you. I'd rather be tortured for a hundred years than fall spiritually. Pray for me. But I'll say this. No matter what happens to me, you should not let that impact your walk with God. No matter what happens to your favorite radio pastor, your favorite guy on TV, or whoever it might be, you don't put your faith in men, you put your faith in God. And these guys look and they see these two guys falling away and Samuel's getting old. And instead of turning to the Lord, they look at the world's example. Look at verse 5. And they said to him, look, you are old. Well, thanks a lot. I needed to hear that. (laughs) Samuel, we respect you, but you're not getting any younger, pal. It's my paraphrase. And while we respect you, look what he says. Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. That's a double ouch. By the way, you're old, you're not getting any younger, and your sons are a mess. Thanks for stopping by my house. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for coming up for the visit. But notice they respect Samuel's God-given authority, and they come with this concern in their heart, and they reveal again the elders have enjoyed this time of revival. They do have some spiritual understanding, enough to recognize the problem, but not enough to understand the solution. This is a problem in the world today. You know, every talk show on TV is the biggest waste of time. Let me tell you why. Because they identify all the problems and they got no solutions. Amen. Isn't that true or what? Amen. They sit around and talk about it. Well, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, it is. Well, we got to do something about it. Yeah, we do got to do something. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm. Okay, see you next time on, you know, whatever. And the truth is, I just yell at the screen, Jesus! You got a problem with the kids? Jesus. You got a problem with alcohol? Jesus. You got a problem with whatever it might be? Jesus. Amen? Amen? And most of them wouldn't be in the problems they're in if they were just walking with God to begin with. They got shows where people are trying to figure out which one's their dad and they're testing eight guys. What's up with you? Start walking with God, you won't have to do that. Amen? Be pure before the Lord. I don't get it. I was, you can tell I was homesick last week. See, that's what happened. Daytime television's not good. So then it says this. Now make us a king to judge over us like all the nations. Give us a king to judge over us like all the nations. This is their solution. You know, Samuel, we're looking at you. You're getting old. We've looked at man, the other men who are here, and they're not up to snuff. So we're looking at the men around us, and we want to have someone like they have that we can look at, and we can see, and we can touch, and we can follow. This is no different than when the children of Israel made a golden calf because they wanted a God they could touch. I'm glad my God is so big I can't just touch Him. Amen? I'm glad He's so big I can't put Him on a stand somewhere. Amen? Prop Him up on Him. There's my God. He fell down. Let me put Him back up. I'm glad that's not my God. 
I'm glad he holds the universe in the span of his hand. That's the God that we serve. But sadly, they're looking at it from the world's perspective. Looking at it through the eyes of men. Instead of looking to the Lord. And instead of understanding God's plan for Israel, that they were to be unlike all other nations, they said, give us a judge like all other nations. Guys, this is a picture for you and I. We are not to be like this world. We're to be in it, but not of it. Amen? And so when we say, when I hear pastors say, well, we need to be more like the world, I just want to puke. Because give me a verse for that. We're not supposed to be like the world. Amen? And they said, make us like the other nations. Give us a judge like all the other nations have. Let us fit into the world. But you know what? They didn't need a judge. They had one. And his name was Jehovah. They had a judge. His name was Almighty God. He alone was to be their king. Their faith was to be in him, not in any man. And here we see the beginning of Israel falling away from God, the quenching of the spirit of revival as they looked to men, not to God. Their faith was shaken by the actions of men who were falling away, and they seek a man to solve their problems. Again, a good lesson for us, not to put our faith in men, but in the Lord alone, lest our faith be shaken by the failure of men. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Keep your eyes on Jesus, and men will not make you fall. Keep your eyes on him, because he's always faithful. We must not make the mistake of looking to man, but to God. So number one, falling away from God, how to quench the spirit of revival, look to men, not to God. And when you do, both lose and build your faith based on the actions of men. Number two, look to the world for direction. You want to fall away from God? Just look to the world for direction. Seek the world's direction in your life, and you'll see how that works out. Look at verse six. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now Samuel was a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he was displeased. That word displeased in Hebrew means broken up. He was broken up when he heard what they said. As he knew their request was contrary to the will of God. Israel in desiring a worldly king to rule over them was rejecting their true king, Almighty God. And Israel through Samuel had direct access to God, to His love and His grace, but rather than realizing how blessed they were, they were looking for a, a man they could follow. So how does Samuel respond when he's displeased? And I want you to, if you underline things in your Bible, look what it says there. It says, but the thing displeased Samuel, and then how does Samuel respond? Look at the end of the verse. So Samuel went out and argued with them vehemently and beat them about the head. Is that what it says? Samuel prayed to the Lord. When we're displeased, don't fight, don't argue, pray. Amen? Amen? Instead of getting into a battle with somebody, just go before the Lord and give it to Him. And that's exactly what Samuel does. A great example of how we should respond when we face a trial. Israel, when faced with a trial, cried out for a king. Samuel, when faced with a trial, cried out to God. We don't need to cry out for a man. We need to cry out to the Lord. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Heed the voice of the people. Here we see an example of God's permissive will. You know God has a perfect will and a permissive will. 
Here's what I mean by that. God has an ultimate plan that he would love for us to walk in, but he will not force us because he's a God of love and grace and mercy, and he will not force himself upon us. So here's his plan. It's available to us, but we can choose to go our own way. God's perfect will and his permissive will. Their perfect, God's perfect will for Israel was that they would continue to exalt him as their king. But he's not going to force that upon him and upon them. And because they desire their own king and they're crying out for their own king, Samuel comes to the Lord and the Lord says to Samuel, give them what they want. Sometimes the worst judgment we can ever have is to be given what we want. When we say, Lord, I want, I want, and we're going to see as we get to the end of this chapter, it's pretty painful. God will never force his highest upon us. Often he'll allow us to have our own way that we might be brought to the end of ourselves. Then look what he says. Second half of verse 7. It says, give the people... Heed the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God alone was to be on the throne. And when we follow the world's example of putting our faith in any man, any army, any government, any political party, amen? amen. You know what? I happen to vote a certain way politically, and I, you know, duh, I wonder what that is. But you know what? Here's the point. My uh, you know, and I'm an American, and I love being an American, and I'm blessed to live in this country. But you know what? Way before I'm an American or a Republican or anything else, I'm a Christian. Amen. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and He's the one I put my faith in. And I'm not, you know what, and again, I think we need to be, you know, politically active, and we should vote and things like that. But guys, this world is not going to change because we get the right guy in office. This world is going to change because God is being magnified and glorified and lifted up and people are giving their lives to Jesus Christ. Amen. We want people to stop having abortions, let's tell them about Jesus. Amen. We want to see people, you know, stop voting for things and stop promoting homosexuality and ungodliness. Let's have them fall in love with Jesus Christ and all that will change. Amen. And so we're seeing very clearly here that he's saying, you know what? They have taken me off the throne, and they want to put a man on the throne, let him. Boy, those are hard things for Samuel to hear. But that's the same thing that will happen in our lives. When we follow the world's example of putting our faith in any man or any army or any government, we are rejecting Almighty God. Our faith should be in Him alone. Here's the good news. They can't vote Him out of office. He will always be God. He will always be in charge, and He's always going to be faithful. And anything that happens has to go through His hands first. Aren't you glad? Well, what a peace that brings to my heart. And so it says there, I should not, that I should not reign over them. Remember this, when people reject the gospel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the Lord. And we should not be offended, but brokenhearted and praying for them. Look at verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I have brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. This was nothing new for Israel. Seven times in Judges over a 400-year period of time, what did they do? They would reject God. They would start serving false gods. They would walk away from the Lord. They would be in bondage. And finally, they would cry out to the Lord because of their bondage. He would bring them a deliverer. He would deliver them yet again. So this is nothing new. 
When they came out of Egypt, remember that when they came out of Egypt, there was a pillar of fire leading the way. They had been there at Passover when the angel of death came down, and because the blood and the shape of the cross was there, they were delivered, but the firstborn of Egypt was killed. Pharaoh let them go. They get to the Red Sea. Their backs are against it. They're murmuring against God. He opens up the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. The Egyptian army comes in behind them, and they all get drowned. Now, right after that, Moses goes up on the mountain, and while he's there, they make a golden calf. Can't you just see the Lord, oy vey, what are you doing? I don't understand you guys. I mean, I just opened the Red Sea for you, like a few days ago. The pillar of fire, what are you doing? But here's the point, how quickly we can turn away from God. How quickly we can look for something tangible to hold on to. He's saying, this is nothing new. They rejected me before when they made a golden calf. They're rejecting me now when they're crying out for a man they can follow when they've already got Almighty God to follow. Guys, the answer is the same today. God has done great and awesome works, and He alone is the one we ought to worship. Not your career, not your possessions, not pleasure, not comfort, not wealth, not the political system, nothing else. Christ. Him alone belongs on the throne. Verse 9. And it says there, Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now, if we cry out for something long enough, God will let us have it. And he cried, they cried out, and they cried out, we want a king like the world. We want to be like the world. We want to follow the world's example. We want to follow the world's example. They've got a king, we need a king. They've got a guy in the front, we need a guy in the front. We need someone we can follow behind. We want someone who can stand before us and lead us every step of the way. And you know what was amazing was, they're acting like they've never won a battle. And yet they've been victorious at every battle where they walked in obedience to the Lord. In a supernatural way. But yet, they wanted to be like the world. And again, they're crying out, so God says, okay, give it to them. Go ahead and give it to them. And again, as I said, often the greatest judgment God can give us is to give us our own way. Psalm 106.15 says this, He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. Falling away from God. How to quench the spirit of revival. Look to men, not to God. Both lose and build your faith based on the actions of men. Number two, look to the world for direction, follow the world's example, and reject the Lord's leadership. You're on your way to going from revival to rebellion. You're falling away from God. Number three, disregard God's word. Act like it's not that big of a deal. And again, we don't have to talk about that. Well, we should. We can talk about it every time we meet. But the truth is that we see an epidemic of that today. People don't truly believe what the Bible says. If they did, they would live different. Amen? And there are too many churches today where the Word of God is not even being taught. Breaks the heart of our Savior. So, number three, disregards God's Word. Reviews to heed divine warnings. Don't truly believe what God's Word says. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. Now notice, when Samuel goes to the people, he doesn't give them his opinion. He gives them what? God's word. He doesn't get up and say, well, I think, you know, I was thinking about, and, you know, here's what I think. You know, today I want to talk to you about seven steps to financial freedom. I want to talk to you about three ways to overcome your anger. I want to talk to you about how to have a happy, healthy, and joyful life. He got up and said, here's what God's word says. Here's what the Lord says. 
Let me tell you what the Lord says. I don't care what men think. I want to know what God says. Amen? Amen? I want to hear what the Word of God says. So here comes the Word of God. Now, he's going to give it to him, and it's going to be very direct. And I like that, as you might imagine. Look what it says in verse 11. So here's what's going to happen. This king you asked for, and he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over thousands and captains over fifties. He will set some to plow his, his ground, to reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for chariots. Okay, you want a king? If you get him, here's what he's going to do to your sons. Your sons are going to be used as animals. Some are going to pull his chariots, and some are going to plow his fields and reap his harvest. So if you want the king, you can have him, but here's what he's going to do. Your sons, you won't see them. He's going to rip them out of your house. They're going to be pulling his chariots like wild animals, and they're going to be plowing his fields and fashioning his weapons. Verse 13, not only will he take your sons, but he'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. So your daughters will be his slaves for domestic help. They'll be cooks and bakers and perfumers to take care of the king. So your sons will be like animals, and your daughters will be his domestic help. You want a king? Here's what he's going to do to you. Get ready. Verse 15. He will take, oh, verse 14, excuse me. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. So not only is he going to take your sons and your daughters, but he's going to take the best of your fields and vineyards and give them to his friends. So he's going to take your kids, he's going to take all your stuff, and he's going to give it away. That king you wanted, here's what he's going to do to you. Verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. This king you want, he'll take all your possessions for himself. You want a worldly king? You want to follow him? He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Five times it says, he will take. He's going to take, take, take. That's still true today of the false gods of this world. All they want to do is take from you. You ever notice that? Every false religion on this planet is what you need to do. You know what's great about our God? He doesn't want to take from you, but give to you. For God so loved the world that he... He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through Him might be saved. That's the God we serve. And He gives, and He loves, and He cares, and He ministers. But the gods of this world take, 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 and take. And that's exactly what this king would do. Verse 18, not only will He take from you, but then it says, and you will cry out in that day, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So he's going to take from you. He's going to place you under bondage. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your possessions. He's going to make you slaves to serve him. And in the end, you're going to cry out because the oppression is so great. But by then, the Lord will not hear you. If we insist on rejecting God and following the world's example, and we put a man on the throne, a throne that rightly belongs to the Lord, be ready to go it alone. 
If you walk away from God and you reject God and you're going your own way and you're following after the things of the world and you put a man on the throne or you put yourself on the throne, be ready to go it alone. Now that is not God's highest, it's not God's desire. But God will never force himself upon the throne of your life. It's up to you to put him there. The kings and the false gods of the world take, 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 and our God came to give. So how would Israel respond to this? Now, is that a pretty clear warning? Anything ambivalent about that? Uh, you guys do it. They're going to take your kids. You're going to be slaves. You're going to take your stuff. And in the end, you're going to be crying out because the bondage is going to be so heavy and God won't hear you. That's pretty clear, right? Now, look how they respond. Falling away from God, how to quench the spirit of revival. Number five, Number four, demand your own will. Tell God what you want. Tell God you know better and act like it. Amen? I know better. I'm better. I know better than God. I know none of you have ever done that, I'm sure. None of you ever thought, well, God doesn't, you know, he must have been asleep when he wrote that verse. I knew, you know. But he doesn't know my, and there's the other thing that we always do. But my circumstances are different. But you don't understand. But, you know, and we're always looking for the holy loophole. There's, you know, just look for the word of God. Amen? So here's what happens. Here's the clear warning. Here it comes. Both barrels. It's not hidden. God said it. You ought to believe it. Now look what they do. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And then look at this. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us. This reminds me of a three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. I'm going to have what I want. Even though the warning was clear, the direction was complete, no. No, but we're going to reject the Lord and your warnings, and we're going to follow the world's example, and we're going to pledge our allegiance to a man. And you know what? The people actually thought they knew better than God. If they really believed what he said, would they have done this? Here's the problem. God's word says it, and we start to question it. And this is exactly what Satan loves to do. Satan's biggest tactic is to get you to question the word of God. Did God really say, is what he said to Eve, all the way back in the garden. And he'll say to you, does God's word really say? There's nothing he loves better than a biblically ignorant Christian. If you're biblically ignorant, you don't know what the word of God says, he can twist you like a pretzel. That's why we need to know what the word of God says. We need to know it so we understand and recognize the counterfeit when it comes. And so here comes the word. They should have believed it. They didn't really believe it because they said no. God says, and they said no. By the way, God says you say no. That's never good. No. God, I'm not going to do it. Okay. The worst judgment we often get is God giving us what we want. I want what I want. I don't care what the consequences are going to be. And sometimes people just have to learn the hard way. And you know, my heart is that, you know, when you have children or when you have people that you minister to, you want to help them avoid the hard way. Just how thick are these people? Seems unbelievable, even crazy, that people would actually bring affliction upon themselves on purpose, doesn't it? Why would you do that? I don't believe they thought the consequences would come. Have you ever seen people that stupid before? Yes. We are people that stupid. 
The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And yet, in this room tonight, somebody is here dating someone who's not saved, more than likely. Yeah, but you don't understand, but he's a really nice guy, and he said he'd come to church with me, and isn't it amazing how we got all these rules that we're trying to help God with so he understands why it really shouldn't be what he said? Everybody else is doing it. I mean, I really won't get hurt. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Again, I would love, sometimes I would love to just take like a month's worth of counseling sessions and just put them on video and play them. And then you know what? People would stop dating unbelievers about that quick. Because they would see, man, that's not, that other side of that's pretty rough. Yes, it is. The Word of God says, be ye not drunk with wine. Does the Bible say that? But people drink like the world and call it liberty. God sa- God's Word says sex is to be maintained within the bonds of marriage, but we excuse sexual promiscuity away and say, hey, it's the 21st century. Sex is like fire. Fire is good in the fireplace. It warms your house. In the drapes, it burns your house down. Amen? God created it for husband and wife. Not going to be married someday. Already married. Amen? And yet we can, oh, but yeah, but this is the 21st century and things. No, it's not. God knew. Did God know there was going to be a 21st century? Of course he did. He's God. God's word says we are to be salt and light. In the world, but not of it. But then we act just like the world. Some people say that sheep don't know that they're not goats because the, the sheep are, are, there's goats that don't know that they're not sheep because the sheep act like goats. You know, they look at us and we look like the world. Shouldn't we be different? Radically different. We're aliens here. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, but yet we place him second or fifth or tenth on the list. The Bible's, it's the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Amen? God's Word is not a menu to choose from. Well, I like this one. The get out of hell free. Yeah, that's good. I, I get out of hell. I like that one. Highlight that one in big letters right there. That's good. Honor your mother. Oh, submit to the authorities God's place. Oh, not so much. You know what, guys? I truly believe this. I believe it is sin for us to, to just cry out vehemently, against those in authority over us, because the Lord says we're to submit to them. Now, I'm not saying we can't point out sin when it's there, but we still need to submit. Amen? That's what the Word of God says. We fall into this trap because we spend more time focused on the world than on the Lord, and that's why we start to legitimize why it's okay to disobey the Word of God. That's what's happening here. No, we're going to do what we want. And we're going to see in the coming chapters not going to work out so well. Look what it says in verse 20 that we also may may be like all the nations. We just want to be like the rest of the world. We just want to fit in. Any dead fish can go with the flow. Think about that for a second. But when God's called us to swim upstream. God's called us to be different than the world. The Bible says in Romans 12 too, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need to live with the attitude of our Savior that it's not my will, but thy will be done. What the children of Israel are saying, not your will, but my will be done. Lord, we don't care what you say, we're going to do it our way anyway. And again, the greatest judgment we can get sometimes is that God gives us exactly what we're asking for. And it says, 
that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king so we can have someone go in front of us and fight our battles. Now, didn't we just have a battle in chapter 7? Yes, we did. And how did God fight the Philistines? He thundered on them. Now, I've yet to meet a guy who's better than thunder. Amen? God thundered on them. The Philistines, that was it. Game over. Didn't have to have any armor. Didn't have to have any, no military strategy. God just thundered on them. Kind of like to see him do some of those guys on TV. So he thundered on them. And yet they're saying, well, we need a guy who can go out in front of us because we want to be just like the world. Lord, help us not to be anything like the world. Verse 21 and 22. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. God gave them what they wanted, and they would indeed have to learn the hard way. And as I've said about seven or eight times now, sometimes the greatest judgment we can receive is to be given what we've asked for. Be careful what you ask for. You know, instead of asking God and giving Him a laundry list, I think maybe the best prayer we could pray is, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. Lord, I don't even know what to pray for because I'll mess up. So, Lord, I just want your highest. Lord, show it to me. Help me to walk in it. And, Lord, whatever the question is, the answer is yes. Amen? It's better and easier to learn by heeding God's word than by enduring righteous judgment. Amen? So much better just to hear the word of God and respond in obedience than to rebel against the word of God, fight against God, kick against the goads, go through the judgment that comes and be broken and have to come back and be restored. Why don't we just stay there to begin with, amen? So in closing, falling away from God, how to quench the spirit of revival. Look to men, not to God. Both lose and build your faith based on the actions of men. If men do well, have it build your faith. Have men fall down, have it destroy your faith. It shouldn't be that way. Your faith should not be based on men at all, but based only on the Lord. Number two, look to the world for direction. You'll fall away from God as soon as you start looking to the world for examples, for direction, following the world's example and rejecting the Lord's leadership. Number three, disregard God's word. Refuse to heed his warnings. Don't truly believe what he says. Listen to the lie of the devil when he says, did God really say? By the way, how many times does God need to say it in the Bible for us to obey it? One. I've had people say, well, it's only in the Bible twice. How many times do you need it to be there? By the way, God needs to say it zero times for it to be true, amen? But praise God that he tells us, and one time is enough. Number three, demand your will. Believe that you know better than God and act like it, no matter what the cost. My prayer is this, that we would pursue his perfect will, not his permissive will. Lord, we'd say, Lord, help me to walk in the center of your will, to know your heart. Trust him. He knows best. May we press in, not fall away, amen? May we be climbing up that pole, not sliding down it. How do we do that? Begin your day in His presence. And just, as I say, I start the day with the Lord and I just leave Him on speakerphone all day. Amen? Just don't ever hang up the phone. Just walk with Him. Spend your time with Him. Seek His face and heed His word. And make, put Him on the throne, not you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your word. And Lord, we thank You that You are such a loving and gracious God. We thank you, Lord, that we can take a million steps away from you, and it's only one step back. 
And Lord, I do lift up anybody here tonight that maybe has fallen away from you. The Lord, tonight they would come before you and say, Lord, I want to come home. Lord, we know just like the prodigal son, you'll kill the fatted calf. You'll rejoice when someone returns unto you. Help us, Lord, not to be so earthly-minded we're no heavenly good. Lord, I pray instead we'd be so heavenly-minded that we would impact this world for eternity. Lord, I pray for each of us that you would just light a fire in our hearts and help us, Lord, to set our mind on things above, to keep our eyes on you, not to be distracted, not to turn to the right or to the left, but to seek first your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you lead us every step of the way. Father, we want to learn by heeding your word, not by disobeying you. We ask, Lord, that your, just your hand would be upon us. Guide and direct us, Lord. We do pray for unsaved family and friends. Open their eyes to the truth of who you are. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.